Well, now, if you have a Bible handy, I'd ask you to take your copy of God's Word. Uh, turn with me to the, uh, the book of Daniel, the Old Testament book of Daniel. As I arrange my, my screen a little bit here, uh, as I get set up, we are switching for the next few weeks to a few Advent sermons. Uh, they may not be Advent sermons like we typically think of them. <laughs> they may be uh, a little bit different as we're looking today and Daniel and Lord willing as we look in, uh, in Philippians chapter 2 next week. Uh, but we are looking at uh, sort of the high and the low. Typically when we speak of Christ, there are different ways that we, we think of him and who he is for his people. Sometimes we think of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Sometimes we think of Christ in his humiliation uh, and Christ in his exaltation. And that is essentially what we're going to be doing over the next two weeks. Today, from uh, Daniel's prophecy, we're going to see uh, the glory of the Son of Man. And uh, Lord willing, as we gather together next week, we are going to see something of the humility of the Son of God. And so we're taking these opposite ends uh, the glory of Christ as the Son of Man, and then next week, uh, the humility of Christ as the Son of God. And so we're in Daniel today, Daniel chapter 7, and my plan was to read and to study together, beginning in verse 9 through verse 14. Uh, but this has a context, and so I'm going to begin this reading back in chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, this really is just a portion of a vision. We're not going to spend much time in our exposition of the text today, uh, in the first eight verses, but they are important to understand uh, what it is that Daniel sees and how this relates uh, to what he tells us. And so we're going to begin in Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 14, and again, we'll be studying together today verses 9 through 14. Before we read this word together, let's join together in a word of prayer again. Let's pray. Oh Lord and God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would give us eyes to see more of Christ. Give us hearts to believe all that you do and uh, all that you are for your people. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to rejoice in the one who is glorious, your eternal King, and who reigns with a dominion forever and ever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hear now God's word as we find it in Daniel chapter 7, beginning to read in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns. Behold, there came up among them another horn, 
a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in, his, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. And then our text for tonight, beginning in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together tonight. Well, uh, this is a time uh, around uh, mid-December that if you are paying attention in New England, you might just witness a Yankee miracle. Uh, this is the time of the year when sometimes even hardy, hardened New Englanders uh, give in to the spirit of the season and, and begin to experience what can only be described as Christmas joy. And if you see them, if you pay attention, you, you might notice that uh, they're waiting more patiently in lines uh, at the store than normal. If you see them on the street, you might be surprised because they might might say hello to you instead of simply walking by or, or maybe giving that gruff sort of look. You, you might even hear some of them humming carols under their breath. And when it starts to get dark at 4 p.m., as it is even now, uh, the lights of Christmas will make even Massachusetts seem a little bit brighter. I know that it's, it's not politically correct to admit all that. We are supposed to believe, especially in New England, that we, we live in this secular culture uh, that is immune to anything that seems like religious enthusiasm, even at Christmas, even at Easter. And so maybe there's another explanation for it. Uh, maybe it's simply a sense of nostalgia. Maybe it is generations of psychological conditioning, and this is just how we feel at this time of year. Maybe it's a chocolate-induced blood sugar rush. Who knows? But whatever it is, one thing is for sure. And that is, if you are the kind of New Englander who's put off by cheery neighbors, don't worry, it'll all be over soon. Uh, as soon as winter drags on, as soon as Christmas is done, we're going to return to our usual course uh, of ignoring one another. Uh, our usual course of complaining about the weather because human-powered benevolence can only last so long. And as soon as Christmas is over, it's going to be back to normal. That's the way it always seems to go. It's, it's cheerful, it's joyous, but it is incredibly temporary. 
Well, in the winter of 1914, soldiers in the Great War in Europe experienced something similar. It's come to be known as the Christmas Truce. It was this unofficial ceasefire along the Western Front, uh, and it lasted just about 36 hours. Most people, most accounts hold uh, that the truce began on Christmas Eve 1914 when German troops lit candles and began to sing Christmas carols in the freezing mud of their trenches. And those Christmas carols carried through the air, and they were answered uh, by English Christmas carols. And these two nations, filled with Christians, presumably worshiping the Lord Christ through Christmas carols on Christmas Eve, realized uh, something that they had in common. And before long, a few brave souls ventured into that no man's land between the lines uh, and began to exchange cigarettes and schnapps and, uh, and Christmas greetings. And on the 90th anniversary of the truce, the Washington Post called it a victory of human kindness. The Wall Street Journal called it inspiring. Well, Alfred Alexander was there. And in 2003, at 107 years old, he was interviewed by a Scottish newspaper as the only surviving Scotsman to have served in World War I. And this is how he explained uh, the Christmas truce. He said there was a dead silence that morning right across the land as far as you could see. And we shouted, Merry Christmas, even though nobody felt merry. The silence ended early in the afternoon and the killing started again. It was a short piece in a terrible war. That's a pretty good summary. That's a pretty good summary of the power of human benevolence and human kindness. That's the greatest victory it ever wins. Maybe a short piece in a terrible war. And yet, despite all the evidence to the contrary, the Christian gospel proclaims that there is such thing as a peace that is more than temporary, a peace that lasts. There's such thing as a, a peace that, that outlives an infinite number of frozen Januaries. And it has nothing to do with Christmas lights. It has nothing to do, really, even with the world powers being able to put their squabbles aside or finding some commonality with our fellow man. The Christian gospel, both at Christmas and at all other times of the year, the Christian gospel proclaims there is a peace that is based on an eternal reigning king. It's a peace that was announced at the birth of Jesus Christ. It was secured through his death and his resurrection, and it is a peace that will come into fullness when he returns to judge the world in righteousness. 550 years before that first Noel, Daniel saw a vision of that king. He saw a vision of his everlasting kingdom. And as we move into another season of, of temporary cheer, I think what we need is this vision of the Son of Man to help fix our eyes on things that last. It will help us to see the eternal glory of the Son of Man. Now, Daniel's vision of glory uh, is set against this backdrop in the first eight verses. It's set against this backdrop of, of chaos and of violence and of carnage. His vision begins with 
the appearance of four great beasts, one after another. Each one is more terrifying than the one that came before it. And the beasts have, have the speed of leopards. They have the teeth of lions. They have the strength and the appetite of bears. And they devour their flesh and they crush their prey and they trample down whatever their feet can find. And without getting uh, too far into the specifics, we can agree that these beasts represent earthly empires. That's what it says in verse 17. The four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. These are, these are empires. These are kings with their conquering armies. And they take whatever earthly power can offer them. They snatch up vassal states like children collect trinkets and treasures in their pockets. They crush their opposition with a sledgehammer of military might, and empire gives way to empire, and there is this rolling sequence of increasing brutality. And in a single vision, Daniel receives a picture of all the dark side of human political progress. It's a vision, actually, that, that would have been pretty familiar to Daniel. By the time of this vision, Daniel had had lived and served for about 35 years as the Royal Babylonian Council. He was a middle-aged man at this point. When he was born, he began his life as a citizen of Judah. He was born into nobility. He was alive to witness the fall of Jerusalem in 586. That meant that he would have remembered the sight of enemy hordes encamped around the city. He would have remembered the moans of the starving citizens who were reduced to cannibalism while the generals waited outside. Daniel lived through the passing of one empire into another empire, and then in the courts of Babylon, he interpreted other visions that assured him that this same pattern would repeat itself over and over again. You should notice a similarity. If you are familiar with Daniel's vision and with his, his prophecy, you should notice a similarity here with the vision uh, that Nebuchadnezzar received in chapter 2. This is essentially a repetition of the same message. You remember there, there was an image of gold and silver and bronze. You remember the, the dream of the statue with feet of iron and clay and the way that it was crumbled to bits by a stone that was cut by no human hand. And the message was that empire would follow empire from Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome to beyond. And by the time Daniel saw this vision of four beasts arising to conquer the earth, this pattern would have been a fixture in his mind. It probably would have been a fixture in the mind of many of the soldiers who were hunkered down in the trenches of Flanders. It would have been a fixture in the mind of the millions who starved under Joseph Stalin. It would have been a fixture in the minds of the 800,000 Armenians who were snuffed out by Turkish forces. It was a fixture in the mind of Roman centurions and Spanish conquistadors and Marxist revolutionaries for all the violent millennia that human powers have wrestled with human powers and left destruction in their wake. Dale Ralph Davis says that the kingdoms of this age seem to have made Daniel 7.5 their mantra. Arise, devour much flesh. Well, Daniel's vision begins with the chaos of human conquest. And then set against that black scenery, the spotlight of verse 9 flashes like lightning. Verse 9, as I looked, thrones were placed. 
And the Ancient of Days took his seat, and the court sat in judgment, and the books were open. You need to understand the very intentional, the very startling contrast between what Daniel sees in verses 9 and 10 with what's come before it in this chaos of the earthly powers. The powers of the world are, are represented as blended beasts. They are these grotesque amalgamations of, of different animals put together. They're these mongrelized brutes with a lust for blood, and they arise out of these storm-tossed seas, and their campaign consists of chewing and tearing and ripping and stomping, and into that bedlam comes a vision of God. He is the Ancient of Days. He is the one without change, the one without beginning, the one without end, the one without shifting seasons, and his throne is surrounded by innumerable angels. His appearance speaks of unchanged wisdom. It speaks of unmoved justice. It speaks of unblemished holiness, and he opens the books of the deeds of the earth, and fire consumes unrighteousness just as easily as it consumes crumpled newspaper in your fireplace. Verse 11 tells us, really, that as the heavenly scene is set, this, this little horn just keeps talking and talking and talking. There's this chatter in the background as everything else is happening. And this little horn keeps speaking about itself, making great boasts, speaking blasphemies against the high king of heaven. And without a single word from the judge of all the earth, it says that the beast was killed, his body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. And it's this other violent picture, but this time there's an orderliness about it. There's a sense that God is not taxed by exercising justice. There's a sense that the Lord wasn't caught off guard. Just as he waited in the days of the exile in Egypt for, for the sins of the Amorite to be uh, completed, so he's waiting now. He's waiting for the right time to sit and to judge and to act for his name's sake. And so really, this vision of Daniel is not primarily about the horror of earthly empires. It's a vision of God's perfect judgment. That's the first scene that we see in verses 9 to 14. It's the first point of the sermon. It's the first thing that we need to understand. We need to understand God's perfect judgment. That while the nations rage, our God is not idle. He's not aloof. Our God is involved in the creation that sometimes seems like it's doing nothing but spiraling down this drain of depravity. He's the God who sits in perfect judgment upon all the unrighteousness done upon the earth. He's the God who will not allow the wickedness and the oppression and the abuses of mankind to go unpunished. He sees it all. He judges it all. He brings it all into remembrance before his perfect justice. We don't always like to speak about God in these terms. Consuming. Judging. Devouring unrighteousness. But I imagine that if you lived through what Daniel lived through, this might be the vision that you need. The vision that would encourage you that, that God had not abandoned his people to the tyrants of the world. If you had lived as a Christian under the persecution of Nero, 
If you had seen fellow believers stitched into animal skins and thrown to the beasts for entertainment, I suppose this might be the vision of God that you needed. If you'd been a William Tyndale, if you've been a John Huss, if you had been tied to a stake and strangled and then had your body burned simply because you believe that people ought to have the word of God in their own language, that it ought to be accessible to them, maybe this is the vision that you would have needed to remind you that God is involved in this world. I suppose if you had been one of the 100,000 Christians who were driven from their homes just six years ago by the rise of ISIS in Iraq, maybe this is the vision that you would have wanted to see. Then there are the other innumerable smaller injustices that we face, right? They're the personal snubs. They're they're the relational harms. They, They may be directly related to our faith. Most of them probably aren't, but they're shots taken. They're shots returned as we live in this world where we sin and are sinned against. And so many of those things seem to go unnoticed, and they seem to go unreported, and they seem to go undealt with. But from time to time, I think we all need the reassurance that while the nations rage, our God is not idle. We need the reassurance of God's perfect justice. The question is, though, what what does all this have to do with Christmas? What does this have to do with Advent, this this story, this vision of God and his, his justice? Well, it has everything to do with Advent. Because God's perfect justice is never separable from his eternal king. This is the second scene that we find in Daniel's vision. It's the scene that we need, this this picture of God's eternal king. God's perfect justice and God's eternal king. Now, as you consider the, the flow of God's justice in verses 11 and 12, you notice the result there. Right, All the kingdoms uh, either are destroyed altogether or they are stripped of their power. But what happens to that power? It doesn't simply evaporate. Right, God's answer to, uh, to uh, corrupt kingdoms isn't simply to move humanity into some sort of ungoverned anarchy where we all reign benevolently over our own personal choices. It's not God's plan. This vision isn't about a removal of of authority. This is about a reallocation of authority. God answers the powers and the principalities and the rulers of this present age by establishing his own kingdom among the kingdoms of the world. He brings peace and he brings justice by uniting all things together under one king who rules perfectly and permanently. And Daniel was allowed, by God's revelation, he was allowed to see God's king before he uh, he ascended his throne. He tells us, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Now these verses raise that all-important question. Who is this king? And I know you know, but, but just, just for the sake of argument, just, just for a, a, an intellectual exercise, imagine, perhaps, that you had never read the New Testament. And at that point, this question poses us with a puzzle. It presents us with a puzzle. That's because 
the description of this king in verse 13 consists mostly of two elements that Old Testament believers understood to be mutually exclusive. He's called on the one hand, one like a son of man. Now, in, in Hebrew terms, that, that refers specifically to humanity distinct from divine. It, it is a term that rules out, typically, rules out godhood. The first time this phrase shows up in Scripture, son of man, it shows up in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. And Moses writes there, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. You hear that? comparison there. It's a categorical difference. Are we talking about God or are we talking about a son of man? It shows up 93 times in the book of Ezekiel. That is, is God's uh, chosen title for his prophet in that book. And it's, it's a title that he uses to stir up Ezekiel to action, to call him really to obedience. It's a, it's a term of humility, and, and it puts Ezekiel in his place. He's merely a servant. He merely does what the Lord calls him to do. And then in various places, other places in the Old Testament, it shows up with the same significance. To be called a son of man is to be humbled. It's a description that draws attention to the limitations of human nature. But in Daniel, the one who is like the son of man also comes with the clouds of heaven. And that is the domain of God alone. Think about what you know from the Old Testament scriptures. It is God alone who wraps himself in clouds as thick darkness. It is God alone who, who covers Mount Sinai in thick dark clouds and, and appears in thunder to his people. It's God alone who rides on the clouds as a chariot going into battle against his enemies. Here's what Psalm 68 verse 4 says. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Exalt him who rides on the clouds. His name is Yahweh. And rejoice before him. Who is the one who rides on the clouds? It's Yahweh. It's the Lord. It's God alone. And so you understand this conundrum. In Daniel 7, this, this king is described as divine and as human. He is the son of man who inhabits God's domain and is able to stand unconsumed in the presence of his holiness. He is ushered before the eternal judge and he is given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And so it isn't a puzzle for us because we know the New Testament. We've read the scriptures. We know that outside the book of Ezekiel, the greatest concentration of this phrase, Son of Man, shows up in the Gospels, where it is not God's title for his prophet, but Jesus' title for himself. We know that Christ is the one, says Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, he's the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's described as divine. But then the very next verse, Colossians 1, verse 20, according to the next verse, he's also the one who has reconciled to himself all things, whether on heaven or earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now there's a description at least as puzzling as Daniel 7. The fullness of God and the blood of a cross. He's the high king of heaven in the humility of humanity. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He's laying in a manger where the livestock feeds. He's the one in whom heaven and earth are joined together. He is the creator who entered creation. He is the eternal son of God who became a son of man. 
And this is what all of this has to do with Christmas. John Calvin wrote that God's empire was hidden. It was unseen until he showed forth his glory in the person of his only begotten son. It was then, it was then that God, who seemed for so many ages not to notice the world, not to care for his elect people, it was then that God sat in judgment at the advent of Christ. Who is this king? Who is this son of man? Well, he is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is fully God and he is fully man. He is the eternal king who has entered our humanity. He is the Lord who proves God's involvement in the world. He is the one who came to establish God's kingdom among the chaos of our sin. As we sing every year, come to earth to taste our sadness, he whose glories knew no end. And Daniel received here a vision of the glories of the eternal son. You know, at Christmas time, we often dwell on the miracle of the incarnation itself. Wonder of wonders, God made flesh, and we're, we're enraptured by the sympathy of it all because it reminds us that we're not alone in this world. I think if David understood the fullness of his vision, I don't think he quite grasped all of it. But if he had understood the fullness of the vision that he was witnessing, I think he might have been enraptured by God's sympathy as well. But his focus seemed rather to be on the permanence of it all. Verse 13, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That is, when the king comes into his glory, he's going to establish something far greater than a temporary Christmas truce. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His reign will secure the peace of his people forever. That was what we read even, uh, even just a little bit ago as a witness of the angel who appeared to Mary. Luke chapter 1, verse 32. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. It was the witness of Paul who said that on the cross of his sacrifice, Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. It was the witness of Christ on the day of his ascension that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. It was the witness to the Hebrews that Christ now sits at the right hand of the Father, waiting until his enemies shall become a footstool for his feet. It was a witness of John's revelation that he's coming with the clouds. He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. And until that day, God's saints pray together with John, Amen, come Lord Jesus. We pray, come Lord Jesus, by your word and by your spirit. We pray, come Lord Jesus, and reign in our hearts, and conquer that beast of sin that, that twists our lives into contorted shapes of selfish ambition. Restore us. Come and, and restore us to the image of your humanity. We pray, come, Lord Jesus, and remind us that until all wrongs are righted, you actually keep the tears of your saints in a bottle. You keep a record of all of the tossing of your children. 
We pray, come, Lord Jesus, and assure us that, that no prayer has escaped your notice, that no cry for justice from your martyred saints throughout the centuries has gone unheard. We pray, come, Lord Jesus, and assure us by faith that our sin has been laid on you, that by your death and resurrection you give us peace with the Father and access through the Spirit. And that is what Advent is about. It's about remembering that God's eternal King has come into the world. It's about believing that, that one day he's coming back. He's coming in power and he's coming in glory and he's coming with everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. And Advent is about recognizing that, that the glory of God's kingdom belongs to the eternal Son of Man. And I hope that you remember that. Not just at Christmas time, not until the lights are put away. I hope that you remember that through every dark January until you also see his face. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Savior of whom it speaks. We thank you for this vision given to Daniel and through his words given to us. We thank you that Christ is the high King of heaven, our victory won. We thank you that he's the one who secures an eternal peace for his people, that we may rejoice in who he is for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, brothers and sisters in Christ, hear God's good word for you, his benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.